Greetings. We hope you enjoy this podcast of a Science for the Public program. If you'd like to see the video of this program, just search the title on our website under the Archives tab at the top of the homepage, www.scienceforthepublic.org. Good evening. I'm Yvonne Stapp for Science for the Public, and I welcome you to our first presentation in our Science Literacy Lecture Series at MIT. First, we'd like to express our great appreciation to Professor Dan Sitzo uh, for arranging to host the series here at the Earth, Atmospherics, and Planetary Sciences Department, and also to Helen Hill here for the webpage for the series. Our topic tonight is the issue of public health, and we are honored to present Dr. Sandro Galea, the Robert Knox Professor and Dean of the School of Public Health at Boston University. Dr. Galea is a leader worldwide in the effort to connect health and context. As he says, health is more than just medicine, more than just eating our veggies and getting exercise. We must consider the relationship between health and environment, politics, economics, and other factors that impact physical and mental well-being. As a physician and epidemiologist, Dr. Galea has focused especially on the consequences of mass trauma in many parts of the world, and you're familiar with quite a bit of that going on today. Dr. Galea has dealt firsthand with catastrophe in his past service to uh, Doctors Without Borders. And in his research, he's worked on a broad range of issues, including mental health and substance abuse, major crises here today. He's the author of numerous books, and he will talk about his most recent one tonight, Healthier, 50 Thoughts on the Foundations of Population Health. That book is must-reading and very readable. Even the way it's put together, it will change the way you think about things in public health. And I promise it will change the way we think about health. And we need it. It's not a minute too late. And the human community in general. It is a very great pleasure and honor to welcome Dr. Sandro Galea. Thank you. Thank you, Yvonne, and uh, thank you, everybody, for being here. Uh, so I am uh, going to talk a little bit about the subject from the book I wrote uh, called Healthier, which Yvonne mentioned, and uh, really to shift to this idea of what is it that we should be talking about when we talk about health, and uh, to ask how is it that we should be thinking about health, and why is it that we've been thinking about health all wrong? And I'll start. The, the fundamental premise of, uh, of uh, this conversation really is that we care about health, and we care about health a lot. And in fact, you look at uh, poll after poll and, uh, and survey after survey, and it shows that Americans care about health more than they care about much everything else. This is um, an example from a recent poll, Top Issues for Americans, and what you see is that health is uh, the top of the list ahead of unemployment, terrorism, immigration, etc. So premise A is that Americans care about health, and we actually care about health a lot. Now, before I move on to why it is that I'm making an argument that we should be talking about health differently than we normally talk about health, I do want to start off by pointing out that this is a good time. This is actually a good time for health. And I want to start by talking a little bit about the good. 
This is the uh, longest time series that exists about life expectancy in the world, which is the United Kingdom. What you see is that life expectancy trundled along around 40 for really centuries, until about 150 years ago, when all of a sudden we've gained about another 40 years. We've doubled our life expectancy in the past um, 150 years. And it's, it's actually hard to wrap your brain around what it means to have a life expectancy of 40, but um, most uh, people who I speak to in uh, audiences in universities are, would say, well, I'd probably spend less time in school if I knew that my life expectancy was going to end around 40. But this is a dramatically different time to live than it was living in the 1800s, just 150 to 100 years ago. And here's another illustration. This is global child mortality. The, um, this is children under five dying. And uh, the red are children under five dying. The blue are children under five living. And what you see is that as recently as 1800, again, 150 to 100 years ago, about 40% of children died before the age of five. Now that number is down to the low numbers. So that's the good. That's the good. So number one is we are living in the healthiest time in human history. Now, together with that improvement in, in, uh, in uh, how we're living has come our dominant thinking about health. Our dominant thinking about health is that this change is ultimately wrought by our medical system and how we go about intersecting with health today. And the thesis of my, uh, my argument really is that that's not the case. But to illustrate that, let me start off by pointing out what is not so good. So what is not so good about our health? Well, in the domestic context, the American domestic context, most uh, people who are well-read recognize that health in the United States is lags behind many of our, of our um, uh, high-income peer countries. This is uh, looking at non-communicable disease mortality by select countries. This is us, and we are higher um, death from non-communicable diseases than Denmark, Ireland, Greece, Norway, really all other high-income countries. This is generally recognized. This is generally recognized in most, in, in most well-read audiences. What is not as recognized is the fact that it was not always like this. And when you look at this, this is uh, life expectancy on the y-axis, and this is a year, just in the past 35 years. The red dot is the United States. The gray dots are all the other high-income countries. And all I want you to see is that we were in the top half as recently as 1980. And what's happened since 1980 is we've continued to gain life expectancy, but we've been gaining at a much slower rate than everybody else until we have landed ourselves right at the very bottom of the life expectancy heap. The bad news is that we have done this to ourselves in the past 35 years. The good news is that we've done this to ourselves in the past 35 years, which means we can undo it. As our life expectancy has been going up at a very slow rate, and in fact we're seeing a dip in life expectancy in the past year, um, many other countries have, overpassed, have uh, surpassed us, have overcome us. That's the United States, Singapore, Japan, Costa Rica, Chile, all now have higher life expectancy than the United States. So what's going on? What's the picture? Why is our life expectancy so low? Well, our life expectancy is low, and it's consistently low at all age groups. So I'm, let me show you life expectancy, um, mortality, and mortality rates, actually, by age group. The blue bar is the United States. The red bar is all, the median of all the other high-income countries, OECD countries. So this is age group. This is under one year, one to 14 years, et cetera. First of all, you see this U-shaped curve, which is very standard in that mortality is lowest in the teenage years and early adult years. Mortality is high in childhood and then goes back up again later in life. But what I want you to see is that the blue bar is higher than the red bar at all ages. So mortality is higher under age of one, 
higher in any time, 25, 29, 30, 34, we essentially kill more people at all age groups than other high-income countries, all the way till age 75. Then I want to show you the slide of what happens after age 75. So after age 75, same schema, blue is the US, red is all other countries. What you see is that this reverses. The blue bar is now lower than the red bar. And mortality in the other high-income countries is higher than it is in the United States. So we have higher mortality at all ages until age 75. And, but then over 75, we have a higher mortality in other countries. So this is a great country to live in as long as you live till age 75, because then you live forever. So why is that? The reason that is, is because all our focus in health, something that we care very much about, has been on medicine and on curative approaches. And the benefit of those approaches accrues at towards the ends of life, when we can gain not very much, but we gain a little bit, giving us a mortality advantage at the end of life. In fact, if you look at our rank as a country, how do we rank for mortality at different age groups? This is a rank graph. There are two lines, men and women, they behave the same way. You see, we are 17th. This is the rank down 1 to 17. We rank 17th at all age groups, essentially. So here we bump to 16th, all the way to age 75. And then we jump to number one rank after age 75. That is what we have wrought in terms of how we think about health today. And in fact, a lot of this has emerged in the past 30 years. It wasn't always like this, just as I showed you before. Here is a, a recent graph, which I think makes a very nice case of showing this. This is called American exceptionalism. And it's the difference between American life expectancy and the average life expectancy in OECD countries, other high-income countries. And what you see is, until about 1990, see, the US was in the blue. Our life expectancy was higher. Then you see what happened here in 1990? Then we flipped. Then we flipped. And now our life expectancy is getting progressively worse compared to the other high-income countries. So I have called this phenomenon this. This is an unhealthy mismatch. It's from a paper that I published uh, a uh, few months ago. And the mismatch is as follows. The mismatch is that we care about health. We care about health a lot. But our achievement in health is much less than how much we care about health. We care about health, and that outweighs what our achievement is. Now the question, of course, is why is that? Why is that? And the reason that is, I think, is twofold. One is our scholarship, that we are producing evidence that is not helping us overcome this. And the other one is our national health conversation, that when we talk about health, we talk about the wrong things. Now, I'm actually not going to talk about our scholarship at all today. That's the subject of a different talk. But I want to talk about the national health conversation. I want to talk about how it is that we are misunderstanding what health is and what it is that we should be talking about when we talk about health. Before I do that, let me go back to the initial slide I showed. I showed a slide about the polls and about what Americans care about when they talk about health. And I just go back to this slide. This is, um, you remember I showed at the beginning, Americans care about health more than everything else. The blue here, superimposed, is actually what the media talks about. So this is, of course, what Americans care about, and the blue is what the media talks about. This was a particular snapshot point in time. That, I think, shows some of the disconnect between what we care about and what we discuss in the national conversation. But the more important point I want to make is that when I showed the first slide, I said we care about health. And I showed the polls that show we care about health. But I don't know how many people noticed that the polls were actually not talking about health. They were talking specifically about health care. So it's actually not about health. It's about health care. Even in the conversation that says we care about health, we are specifically talking about health care. So this brings us then to the question, OK, what should we be talking about when we talk about health? Now, 
I think there are many things that we should talk about when we talk about health, but in the interest of one presentation, I'm going to talk about five. So I want to talk about five, five forces, five factors that I think we should be talking about when we talk about health. Let me start with the first one. The first one is that I think when we talk about health, we need to be talking about the actual causes of health. Now, what do I mean by that? Perhaps this is best illustrated by a story. This is a legendary blues man. His name's Blind Willie Johnson. He um, was born in Texas around the turn of the 20th century. Story is that when he was seven, he was blinded in a domestic violence incident when his stepmother threw lie in his eyes. So he grew up poor and blind and black in uh, Texas in the start of the 20th century. He learned how to play the guitar, and that's actually how he made a living, and that's how we remember him now today, because he recorded some songs that have lived on. But as you can imagine, it wasn't a very good living. It's not particularly a good living. He got married. He was living in a house, more a shack, really. The house burnt down, and uh, him and his wife, they had no other money to go elsewhere, so they kept living in the burnt-down house. In his early 40s, uh, Blind Willie Johnson got malaria. His wife took him to hospital, and he was turned away from hospital. Now, it's not clear whether he was turned away because he was black, because he was poor, because he was blind, but then he died. So the reason I tell the story is because the question comes up, what killed Blind Willie Johnson? What caused his death? Now, from a pathophysiologic point of view, what killed Blind Willie Johnson was his malaria. I think we can all agree on that. But I think we can also all agree that if malaria did not kill Blind Willie Johnson, something else was going to kill him that ultimately his, his, the domestic violence, the poverty, the racism, the homelessness that he was experiencing were going to get him sooner or later. If malaria, if there was a pill or a shot to get a fed of malaria, something else was going to kill him the next day. And I tell the story to illustrate that what are the causes of that? What killed Blind Willie? What were the causes of his health? The cause of his health was malaria, but it was also homelessness, poverty, racism, domestic violence. And those are the forces. There's a sampling of the forces that ultimately cause health or cause death. And those are the forces that we cannot avoid if we want to create a healthier world. And the data that I showed about how we are not doing anywhere near as well on health as we should be doing ultimately reflects our misspending. Now, are we, are we spending money? Maybe you can say maybe we're just not spending enough money on health. We are. We're actually spending extraordinary amounts of money on health. Um, in fact, this is uh, sp spending. The purple line is the US spending. Over time, the other colored lines are all the other rational countries in the world. They're all going up together, but we're like way above them, right? The purple line. And in fact, this graph shows, this is life expectancy here, and this is spend on health. And what you see is all the other countries, right? They spend more and their life expectancy goes up. They're all clustered together. But we are spending more, but life expectancy is not gaining. We're like off the chart. We're going off the chart. And why is that? That is because what we're spending, we are spending wrong. What we're spending is ultimately on medicine, on curing us. And that is why we have the advantage in mortality after age 75 and why we have a disadvantage at all other age groups. Because ultimately, what causes health is a combination. Yes, it's medicine. Medicine probably causes 5 to 10% of health. Here it's a 6%. But our genes, maybe 20%. Our, our physical environments, our social environments, 20 30%. Our behaviors, 30 to 40%. And interaction among a bunch of these things. But that green bar, which is medicine, is what we spend 90% of our money on. So we have a mismatch between what we spend and what we should be spending on. 
Now, the stock is being given in Massachusetts. We have the privilege of living in Massachusetts, which has some of the best health indicators in the country. And sometimes I get the comment, well, surely this is not like this in Massachusetts. But it actually is like this in Massachusetts. This is a, a um, change in spending in Massachusetts over the past 15 years. And this shows we've increased our spending on healthcare by about 80%. Well, we've kept the same or decreased our spending on primary, secondary education, law and public safety, mental health, public health, higher education, early childhood education, environment, and recreation. So all the other forces that ultimately produce health, we're underspending on, while we're spending more and more on curative medicine, even in a place like Massachusetts. So what should we be talking about when we talk about health? We should be talking about the real causes of health, and we should be talking about efforts to improve health. For example, efforts like early childhood education. We know that early childhood education is associated with a benefit-cost ratio of about $5 to 1. For every dollar we spend in early childhood education, we get back $5 because we reduce crime rate, child maltreatment, teen pregnancy, and we improve academic achievement. That is what we should be talking about when we talk about health. So point one, we should be talking about the actual causes of health. Point two, we should be talking about emerging pathologies. We should be talking about the conditions that are emerging, that we know are emerging, that are ultimately causing us to lose life expectancy and to lose quality of life. And we are terrible at paying attention to emerging pathologies. Perhaps this is best evidenced recently in the opioid epidemic. We've all heard a lot about the opioid epidemic, but the opioid epidemic didn't just happen overnight. Today, about 64,000 people a year die from a drug overdose, which is more than the peak of car crashes in 1972, peak of HIV in 1995, peak of firearm homicides in 1993. But this didn't just happen overnight. This has been trundling along since the really the late 90s, early aughts. And we paid very little attention to it until, until um, several papers started showing that it's actually white men that were being affected by um, opioids. And this is actually from a fairly classic paper now showing mortality increasing in US white men while it's decreasing among middle-aged men in all other countries. So we have lagged behind consistently substantially on emerging pathologies. Now you can say, okay, well, what are the pathologies that are emerging next? What should we be paying attention to? And we know this. We actually know what we should be paying attention to. And here is a recent um, paper that just came out. And the way to read this is, these are conditions where we are doing better, so we are gaining life expectancy, versus conditions on the left where we're doing worse, where we're losing life expectancy. So just to focus, heart disease and the cancers, you see the big bar on the right here, it's actually we're doing better on those, we're gaining life expectancy. So the question is, what are we losing life expectancy on? And here's what it is. We are losing life expectancy on injuries, you see it right there? Also drug poisonings and opioids involved poisoning, so really a whole basket of injuries, and also suicides. So this basket of accidental death or intentional self-harm, a lot of which is driven by guns, that's one area we're losing life expectancy, and the other area we're losing life expectancy is in Alzheimer's, which is dementias. Those are, these are the coming pathologies. So what should we be doing? How should we be dealing with this? What should we be talking about? Well, we should be talking about things like expanding access to clean syringes. Expanding access to clean syringes, we know, return almost $8 for every dollar spent. But clean syringes remains a politically charged issue. It remains an issue that is highly sensitive and it remains an issue that we restrict, even though the data are very clear that this is an emerging pathology that's going to be coming next. Second thing, we should be talking about emerging pathologies. Third thing we should be talking about, we should be talking about prevention. We should be talking about not about curing disease, we should be talking about preventing disease before it happens. Now I often ask audiences this question, 
Which kind of world would you rather live in? Would you rather live in a world where there is treatment for your Alzheimer's after you've had it for a couple of years? Or would you rather live in a world where you don't get Alzheimer's to begin with? Everybody says they would love to live in a world where they don't get Alzheimer's to begin with. But is that really what we spend our money on? Is that really what we do? And you know, perhaps the best way of looking at this is by looking at trends in medicine and medical research in the past um, few years. One of the biggest trends has been our fascination with our dedication to our investment in personalized medicine. Personalized medicine is a very promising approach to discovery science where we focus on genetic molecular markers of disease. And in fact, our spending on genetics this is from the National Institutes of Health has been going up. And I want to be very clear that the fact that our funding, that our spending has been going up is a good thing. This is good. This is good for discovery science. I'm a big fan of actually genetic and molecular targeting. The point is not that. The point is that we know that if we want to prevent disease, there are many other factors that have changed and matter much more than our genetic factors. Because we know the genetic factors haven't changed in the past 30 years, and we know we've been doing very poorly in health in the past 30 years. We've been doing worse than ever. What has changed? Well, here are things that have changed. For example, our diet. A bagel 20 years ago had 140 calories, today has 250 calories. French fries had 210, now they have 610. Popcorn had 270, now 630. Here's some gasps from the audience. If you had a bagel this morning, good luck to you. Um, uh, that's what's changed. So what's our spending on this? Has, what, what have we done with our spending on these behavioral factors? That's what we've done. That spending has gone down. And what's been the net result of this? Well, here's what's been the net result. Here's one net result. This is cases of breast cancer deaths that we could have averted. Look at this. The way to read this is, until the late 80s, early 90s, we, this is, we're in the red. We actually had fewer breast cancer deaths than um, European countries. And then look what's happened. We've now overpassed them. And we have had about 70,000 deaths from 1990s on that we could have averted had we had the same rate of breast cancer as had the European countries. 70,000, 70,000, mostly women. Um, not 100% women. There are some men who get breast cancer, but nearly all of them women. 70,000 deaths that we could have averted had we focused on prevention the way other countries do. Here's our spending. Here's our spending on prevention and treatment. This is our, and our federal spending, how much we spend on treatment, and how much we spend on prevention. We do not spend enough on prevention. That's at the federal level. Also the same at the private industry level. By the way, in case you're wondering if you're thinking, well, maybe private industry spends a lot of money on prevention. But it doesn't. This doesn't. This is a, a simple graph. This looks at cancer survival rate and the um, share of trials that are privately financed. It means the higher up you go here, you have more private industry funding. And what you see is private industry funding is consolidated in short survival year, uh, in short term survival drugs. In fact, there's less and less industry funding for drugs that go towards helping us survive longer. Our industry funding really is focused on things that cure things quickly. So what should we be talking about? We should be talking about prevention. Here's something that is uh, important to know. Your risk of cavities increases by 15% if you don't drink fluoridated water. And today, 100 million Americans, about one third of the country, do not drink water that's not sufficiently fluoridated, which means they have entirely preventable increased risk of cavities. I always ask audiences the question, do you know if your water is sufficiently fluoridated? Most people don't know. Most people have never checked it out. One should probably check it out. So point three, we should talk about prevention. Point four, we cannot talk about health without talking about the underlying social conditions that cause health. Now, obviously, this has echoes of what I talked about with Blind Billy Johnson, but let me just update it. Let me take it to the present day. So health 
is inexorably linked to money, inexorably linked to place. Income, wealth, drive health in innumerable ways. There is no stronger relationship than the relationship between income and health and uh, income and health, wealth and health. And uh, here's just one simple example. How does income drive health? The way to read this is the way you go down here, you have more income. So what happens? Well, the more income you have, you worker, you have paid sick leave, you get paid vacation leave, you have pension retirement contributions. You live in neighborhoods with sidewalks, parks, playgrounds, recreation centers. You have you report you have excellent or very good health, which means you have better mental health. These all flow from income um, and link to health. I can show I can spend an hour talking about the relationship between income and health. I can spend many hours talking about it. Um, here's another example. This is um, economic mobility in U.S. cities, which is the likelihood of people doing better than the previous generation and infant mortality. So the way to read this is this line here. Here you actually have more economic, uh, this is infant mortality and this is economic mobility. Here more economic mobility and here more infant mortality. You see this very clear dose-response relationship, which means the more economic mobility you have, the lower the infant mortality. And the thing to, to recognize about underlying social conditions is that their role in determining health is getting ever more. They are determining health ever more in that our gaps in health between those who have more social resources and those who have fewer is widening. And this is not well appreciated. Let me show you one slide to make that point. So this slide, the way to read this is just look at the green for a second. So the green, these are quintiles, which is groups of, uh, the whole population is divided into five groups. And this is all men. You can show the same thing for women. Quintile one is the poorest quintile. Quintile five is the richest quintile. And this is life expectancy when you get to age 50. Once you get to age 50, how many more years do you have to expect to live? If you're in the poorest quintile, you have 26 more years to live, right? So 50, you expect to live till 76. If you're in the richest quintile, you live till, till uh, 50 plus 30, so it's 81. Now, the green men are the men who were born in 1930. So these were men who are now in their 80s, right? So that's the green men. But all I want you to see is that the gap in life expectancy between quintile one and quintile five is five years, from 26 to 31, or 76 to 81. So between the richer quintile and the poorer quintile, there is a five-year gap in life expectancy. That's men born in 1930. Now look at men born in 1960. That's in the orange, just 30 years later. Look at the difference between quintile one and quintile five. 26 versus 38, that's 12 years. So between richest quintile, poorest quintile, there, is, there was now, this is men born in 1960, so they're now in their 50s. They have a 12-year life expectancy gap, while men born in 1930s had a 5-year life expectancy gap. So the gap is widening between health for those who have, are the social haves versus the social have-nots. Another wrinkle in this point about the underlying social conditions is that we have a misconception that we can always spend more money on medicine and buy our way out of this issue. And the sad situation is it's not true. We actually cannot. And let me illustrate that by focusing on a disease where medicine makes a difference. Let's take cystic fibrosis. Cystic fibrosis, which is a ciliary motility disease, used to be a death sentence for, for people. Mostly, it's mostly men, although it's not all men for cystic fibrosis, um, um, in their teenage years, early 20s. Drugs and medicine makes an enormous difference. Life expectancy now is in the 40s to 50s for cystic fibrosis. And all of that 
is because of drugs and medicine. So take two countries, the United States and Canada, both countries where everybody who needs it has access to the drugs and the medicine. There are no people dying on the streets because they don't have access to drugs and medicine. So you'd say, okay, well then survival should be the same, right? So let's look at what happened with survival. The black line is the US, the dotted line is Canada. This is median age of survival. Look at this, 1995, US and Canada, same survival. Look what's happened in the past 30 years. This is gap. Now there's a 10-year gap in life expectancy. This is actually difference in life expectancy. 1995 was zero. 2015, it's about 10 years. There is now a 10-year gap in life expectancy for a disease where drugs matter. And why is that? It's because drugs by themselves are never enough. They're never going to be enough. The underlying social conditions matter, and they're always going to matter. Unless we deal with them, we are, we are glass-sealing glass ceilinging really our capacity to achieve better health. So what should we be talking about? We should be talking about, about dealing with these social conditions, to be talking about things like making sure everybody has affordable housing. After we rehabilitate housing, we double the percent of adults that um, have better health. Fifth point, we should be talking about persistent health gaps. We should be talking about the gaps between health haves and health have nots, because unless we address these gaps, it keeps all our health down. And I want to be very careful about this point because the danger with this point is that it makes one think, well, as long as I'm a health have, I don't have to worry about everybody else. Or maybe I, I will if I'm charitable, if I'm a good person. But the point is that the gaps between health haves and health have nots hold us all back. So what are these gaps? Well, we have persistent, deeply persistent racial gaps in this country. We have, a, this is life expectancy by race. That's white, that's black, we're both going up, but we still have about a five, six year life expectancy gap between black and white. We have enormous life expectancy gaps by socioeconomic status, by income, by wealth. And I'll show, you, I'll show you a slide with women on it. So this slide, the next slide, divides all women into five groups, again, quintiles. And this is 1980 on, life expectancy. This is the richest quintile of women. You see their life expectancy has shot up. Look at everybody else. The middle three quintiles, life expectancy stayed the same. Poorest quintile, life expectancy has gone down. So over the past 40 years, 35, 40 years, the only group of women who have gained a life expectancy are the richest quintile. So you, I showed earlier how life expectancy is trundling up. Well, the trundling is driven entirely by the richest 20% of women. Same thing I can show you for me. Um, and there are enormous health gaps in very close geographic areas. This is a, a map of uh, New York City. These are subways in New York City. And what you see here is, um, um, this is uh, age-adjusted mortality rate from heart disease. If you take, uh, um, uh, particularly you take the AC line, you have heart disease uh, rate 15 and 20 at 105th Street, 157th Street, half as much on Spring Street. Same line, two miles apart. Elder Avenue, 19, 96th Street, uh, 10, 36th, Street, 36th uh, Avenue, 17. Two-fold gaps, one to two miles apart, despite the fact that these subway stops I'm showing you are all around, they're all around world-class medical facilities that people from all over the world come to to receive care. Because it really has nothing to do with the medical facilities. It has everything to do with the underlying uh, conditions that create these gaps. So what should we be talking about? What are solutions? Well, here's some solutions. Things like the earned income tax credit. Every time the EITC increases by 10%, infant mortality drops by 23 per 100,000. That's what we should be talking about when we talk about health. So, I want to conclude. I want to conclude, and I want to conclude by uh, 
I'm paraphrasing uh, Rudolf Virchow, who's one of the fathers of microbiology, who said that uh, politics is nothing but medicine on a grand scale. And I agree with him, except for the fact it's not really medicine, it's actually health. Health is about politics. And uh, it's about politics in the definition of politics. That politics ultimately is about the process by which we allocate resources in society, by which we decide what, we, what matters to us, and, by, what, and by, the, by which we then prioritize what matters so we can promote it. And I argue at the beginning there we have a mismatch. We care about health, but we don't prioritize it enough. What we prioritize is medicine, curative medicine. We care about preventing disease, but we do not prioritize that. What we prioritize is curing disease. And that means that we are gaining all the advantage at the ends of life without realizing a vision for a healthier society that will be much more consistent with what we actually think we want. But the other point about politics is that health has real implications for our national politics. And what do I mean by that? Well, in the last year, um, it's uh, no surprise that um, um, this, this slide is a picture of the electoral uh, um, map. And the, 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 the New York Times headline said, establishment shaken after Trump victory. It's, an, it's, not a, it's not a partisan comment. The President Trump's election was a surprise. It was a surprise to most observers. It was a surprise to have President Trump elected many explanations for why President Trump was elected, but I would like to offer a very, very simple one. And the President Trump's election was a vote of frustration for an outsider candidate. Doesn't matter how, what you think about President Trump. He was an outsider candidate. He was, he was a change candidate. Now, why would you vote for a change candidate? Why would you vote for a change candidate, particularly one who you don't know what he's going to do? Well, you might vote for him if you feel like you have no other option because your health has been getting worse in the past couple of decades, despite the fact that the world around you is getting better. Despite the fact that people like me stand up here and say, we're in the healthiest time ever in human history. But my health's getting worse. Well, let's look at this. This is a simple graph. This is change in life expectancy. This is women, but the same thing applies for men. In the past 40 years. Okay? And over here, these are counties in the US which have lost life expectancy. Here are counties that have gained life expectancy. This is the share of the county vote for Trump. A lot of vote for Trump, little vote for Trump. It's a very clear, very clear dose-response relationship that the counties where they lost life expectancy are voting for Trump. Counties that have gained life expectancy, they are not voting for Trump. And I would say, I would argue that this is rational behavior. This is very rational behavior. Because frankly, if get, your health's getting worse over the past 30 years, it strikes me as entirely reasonable to say, I'm just going to vote for this person who's not a politician who is going to change everything because hopefully I'll get better because frankly what do you have to lose and this I think brings us back to the central importance of health central importance of health as a force that ultimately determines everything around us not only about our own life but the life of our society as evidenced in the last election so I want to conclude I'm going to, this is my last slide my last slide I want to conclude with a metaphor this is uh, the best soccer team in the world. This is the US women's national soccer team, which won the last uh, World Cup. And for those of you who don't play soccer, the way soccer is played is there are 11 players on the pitch. And uh, the 10 players in the blue, they can only use their feet. That's why soccer is really football. And uh, the woman in the red, who is Hope Solo, the US national women's uh, goalie, um, she's a goalkeeper, so she can use her hands and keeps the ball out of the net. Now, for those who don't play soccer, the misconception is that the way to win games is by having the best possible goalie, because the goalie can stand in a net and save all balls. Whenever you play soccer, no, if you ever stood inside a soccer net, it's a very big net. And it doesn't matter how good the goalie is, balls are still going to be scored against her. 
Anybody who watches a soccer game, you'll see the goalie spends most of her time prowling outside her net and she's yelling at her fellow players. And what's she yelling at them at? She's telling them, keep the ball away from me. Because she knows that no matter how good she is, if the ball comes at the net, she's going to lose and, ball, and, and goals are going to be scored. Now what's the metaphor? The goalie is medicine. When we're sick, we all want to have a great doctor. We do. We want to have a great doctor who can cure pneumonia, who can cure heart disease, who can cure cancer. We want that. But what we really want is not to be sick to begin with. That's what the other 10 players are. The other 10 players are income, their employment, their housing, their absence of racism. That's what the other 10 players are. And those are the forces that ultimately keep the ball away from the net that keep us from being healthy. Their, their clean air, their clean water, their exercise. That's what ultimately keeps us healthy. And what we really want to do is invest in the other 10 players. Not to say we don't want a good goalie, not to say we don't want a good uh, doctor. We do want a good doctor. But we want to be away from doctor as much as possible so we can all live healthy. And at the end of the day, we can all ultimately die healthy. I will stop there. Here's my contact information. Thank you. Thank you for having me and thank you for uh, being here. I'm happy to take questions now. We hope you enjoyed this podcast of a Science for the Public event. Please check out our website, www.scienceforthepublic.org, for videos of all our events, lists of upcoming events, our weekly Sci News Roundup newsletter, and timely science information.